Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Uh, If you are with us and able, uh, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord's word, let's turn to the great gospel text this morning. Jesus responded by speaking again in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. He sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding party, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent other servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is all prepared. I've butchered the oxen and the fatted cattle. Now everything's ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention and went away, some to their fields, other to their businesses. The rest of them grabbed his servants, abused them, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. And he said to his servants, the wedding party is prepared, but those who were invited weren't worthy. Therefore, go to the roads on the edge of town and invite everyone you find to the wedding party. Then those servants went to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding party was full of guests. Now, when the king came in and saw the guests, he spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. For many people are invited, but few people are chosen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a particular uh, Snickers commercial that I laugh at every time I see it. Um, the ad team at Snickers, I'm sure they're paid well, but they deserve a raise. They're, it's a really funny. Uh, they're great. But there's one that rolls around uh, during football season the last two or three years that I just think is super funny. In the commercial, a man, you see a man headed up a sidewalk to a front door, dressed in a centaur costume, right? Those half man, half horse. And he kind of makes his way up to the front door. He rings the doorbell, and when the door swings open, the camera flips around, and we see him standing proudly at the door, waiting to be greeted with his hands at his hips, right? But then the camera swings back, and we see who opened the door, and we see a man in a Denver Broncos T-shirt, And as he's opened the door, there are several other men in the front room around an easel upon which there clearly looks to be a fantasy football draft board. The man in the t-shirt and another man at the party say to the guy in the centaur costume, hey, Matt, um, with confused looks on their faces, to which Matt replies, and this is a great line, I think I got my fantasy nights mixed up. (laughs) They asked him if he wants to stay, uh, and he says, um, no, uh, I think I'm going to go. And the, the part that I just laugh every time is the camera just stays on him as he tries to get his ha- horse half turned around and as he saunters back down the sidewalk. Um, I think the commercial is funny for a lot of reasons, but I think the commercial is in part funny because it plays into some of our worst nightmares, right? Psychologists say if there's a common dream among humankind... It is a dream about going to school with your underwear on. It's a dream about being asked to speak in public and you are either not clothed or in the wrong clothes. Um, 
that, that sense, that feeling of, of coming to a place either at the wrong time or coming without the right clothes or not prepared, that is just our worst nightmare. This parable is the third consecutive parable in Matthew 21 and 22 that the lectionary has given us to look at. Sometimes the lectionary skips around. It has is stuck with the text uh, the last three weeks. And these parables that we have looked at all have a similar kind of theme. In fact, uh, between you and me, as I was preparing for today, I was kind of wishing the lectionary would skip around, for it's the third straight parable that basically tells the same story. And they're not so much parables as they are allegories. Because as we mentioned a week or two ago, parables, usually Jesus will tell a story and the parable will reveal something, but the disciples afterwards will say, um... Could you explain that one to us? We were totally lost. But these three parables, back to back to back, are not confusing at all. In fact, they function more like allegories where Jesus is using a narrative form to describe how he interprets Israel's history and the religious leaders who are hearing it know full well exactly what it means and it makes them mad and want to go plot to kill him. And so if you have your Bible still open, if you'll look back with me, let me remind you of the last couple of weeks. At the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple and then curses the fig tree. The glory of God has returned to Zion. Ezekiel saw the glory leave, but now the glory in the form of Christ has returned to the temple and has established authority. And they want to know whose authority he has to do that kind of thing. And we get these two parables two weeks ago. There are two sons. One says... Yes, I will, or says, no, I won't go work in the field, but then changes his mind and goes and works. The second son says, oh, yeah, but has no intention ever to go work. And Jesus asked religious leaders, which one of the sons does the will of the father? To which the obvious answer is, well, the one who said no, but then worked. To which Jesus says the harshest thing, hey, you religious folks who are so hard to convert, the tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom way before you. Yikes. Last week, there's a man who owns a vineyard, and he hires tenant farmers to come and work the vineyard on this condition that they, they use the vineyard the way the owner wants it to be used, and they give the fruit of the vineyard back to the owner as his share of the ownership of the vineyard. But the tenant farmers decide, we don't just want to be tenants, we want to own the thing. And so every time the vineyard owner sends people to collect, they beat them and misuse them. And then finally, the vineyard owner says, well, I'll send my son because surely they'll respect him. But no, they kill him too. And then he asks them again, what will the owner of the vineyard do? To which the obvious answer is, throw out those tenant farmers and get new tenant farmers. And now, we get a similar theme, but a whole new setting, a wedding party, which Jesus is likely also borrowing from Isaiah, the way he borrowed the vineyard. And later, New Testament writers will also use this theme of a wedding banquet, this idea that there is a new creation being prepared and we are being invited into and and there is a restitution, a reconciliation, God with creation, Christ with his church. And there is a wedding feast and there's a king who throws a banquet and invites those who are expected to be invited. He invites them first, saying to them, hey, get out your smartphone. 
here's when we're going to have a wedding. Don't miss it. And then sends out, on the day, sends out messengers again to say, it's time. Food's on. It's so good. Come. Now, here's where it moves from parable to a kind of analogy and where it kind of, between you and me, jumps the tracks. For the parable is really not feasible in some ways. For he says, well, not only did they ignore the second group of messengers, but they, they began to abuse them and kill them, which is a strange way just to not RSVP, right? <laughs> just say no, it's fine. But they kill them and beat them, to which we who've just been through two of these parables with Jesus go, oh yeah, we get it, Right? This is about God's people who are invited to be the participants in God's great redemptive wedding feast, but continually refused to come in. And so prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger was sent to say, come on, come on, please come, come in. The grace of God that just refuses to give up on God's people and just keeps saying, come back, come back, come back. But what do they do? They misuse them. And so here's the turn again, the tax, the tax collectors and prostitutes, the folks on the margins, the people who weren't initially invited. The king says, go invite them. Go find everybody you can and invite them to come into the party. And they come into the party. And now we're able to say, oh, we get it. We get it. Jesus, you can move on now. Three stories is enough about how this kind of history of rejection and rejection. And now the good news, though, is that the doors have been thrown wide open and the love of God is expansive and the grace of God knows no limits and the inclusivity of the heart of God invites everybody in. Yay! woo We get it. Move on. <laughs> but although this parable is like the first two, there's two big whoops twists in it. And I want to think about those two twists with you today. The first one comes in verse 7. If you have your Bible still open, let's look at it. The king was angry. He sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Wow. It's kind of an overreaction to not coming to your party. Nobody came to my party. Let's burn down the block. Um, it's a bit of an overreaction, but, but most commentators say the first readers, especially after AD 70, would read it in this way. That again, this is an allegory about how God's people continue to not live into God's heart. And so, as we've talked about before, in AD 70, the emperor Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem. Titus has had enough of the ways in which the people are reacting and pushing back and being zealous and creating patterns of violence. And so Titus comes in and destroys the city and destroys the temple. And when these texts are being written, the people understand a couple of affirmations of who Jesus is. The key one is obviously the resurrection. But there's all this tension in the story between Jesus and the temple. And so that first generation of Christians is beginning to say, right, like the temple was destroyed. And so it's very possible that verse 7 about the city being burned down is a reference to that thing that happens in AD 70. 
And now I, I want to say just kind of something, I, just for a couple minutes, let's swim in the theological deep end of the pool. I, I do not think that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 was simply just kind of God's way at getting back at a people who crucified Jesus. So it's not as though 30 or so years prior, God says, hey, Siri, remind me in 30 years to destroy Jerusalem. I said that because I'm hoping some people online, their phone just went, right? (laughs) Hey, Siri, add destruction of Jerusalem to my calendar. Um, (laughs) Some phones in here may have done it too. Um, But I don't think it was as though God is saying, well, in 30 years, I'm going to do this thing. But what Jesus is saying and the prophets are saying is, God is inviting his people into a reconciling pattern and a participation of peacemaking and healing in the world. This is the ultimate call of God's chosen people, is to be a source of God's redemption and healing in the world. But here's the problem. Rather than being a source of redemption and healing, they became a source of religiousness which only brought further division and brokenness to an already divided and broken world. And so in the same way that my doctor has said to me a couple of times over the last couple of years, you might want to think about losing just a few pounds, like in this area primarily, because you're in your 50s now, and you need to pay attention. And given your family history, like, My doctor every year says, you look okay, but let me talk to you about this, this, and this. Or folks in our world who study various things and will say to us, hey, culture, hey, people, pay attention to this. This is not going the right direction. And if we don't do something about it, it could have really severe repercussions. All of us have been in those situations where we have somebody say, if you don't stop that, it's not going to be good. And I'm convinced that the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is not God saying, oh, yes, I'm, thank you, phone, for reminding me. Today's destruction day. But inevitably, a people who create more and more division and less and less peace in the world. And it causes Christ to cry as he comes into Jerusalem. And it causes the Lord to weep over us when we have patterns that set a trajectory of destruction for us. But the big twist in the text is verses 11 through 13. Now, when the king came in and saw the guest, he spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. Whoops. He said to him, friend, let me stop there for a moment. Pastor Grant preached in the early service this morning and and had a cool insight on this word. The Greek word that's used for friend here is not kind of the normal word that we'd say, oh, hey, buddy, hey, pal. It's a Greek word that kind of has a question to it. So the only other two times in Matthew where the word is used is in the parable where, remember all the workers who show up early in the morning and some late, and they all get paid the same, and the workers who showed up early come and go, are, hey, yeah, what's the deal? And the word out of the master's mouth is this, friend? question mark, like friend. And the only other time it's used is when, when the soldiers come to the Garden of Gethsemane 
And Judas comes to kiss Jesus, and Jesus calls him friend. And so he says to the man who didn't wear the wedding clothes, friend, question mark. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth, which again seems like a bit of an overreaction to not dressing right to the party. But this allegory seems to be saying, listen, here's the deal. The doors are wide open, but those who have entered in by God's gracious heart and big, inclusive spirit, if you come in, but you actually don't join the party and are transformed by all that is going on in the party, eventually the same kinds of fates that awaited those who never came to the party actually await those who come to the party but don't actually ever enter in. And so the twist is this. We've gotten used to Jesus now saying, listen, you original folks, you have rejected, rejected so hard to convert the religious, but the rest of you that have come in, yay! But now the twist is this. All of you who have now come in, yay! But there's a couple of requirements about staying And the primary one is this, that you are transformed by the party that you are a part of. That a new life, a new reality, I can't help but read this text and think about the robes that the early church took on as they came out of the waters of baptism that symbolized this new life in Christ Jesus. That has to be what we put on if we are going to stay in this people who are a reflection of the transformation of God's work in the world. And so this morning as I was thinking about, or this week as I was thinking about the text for this morning, and how do we hear this today? Just briefly, I was thinking about two or three, um, what I'll call kind of bad theologies that I think sometimes shape us and keep us from entering into all that God wants. The first I'll call it kind of bad, a bad theology of connection. Um, Things change. I I don't want to bore you too much here, but things changed in the history of the church in the fourth century. Um, An emperor by the name of Constantine in 325 decided Christianity had grown to such an extent in the empire, they decided rather than see Christianity as a problem to the empire, what if we flipped that and made Christianity kind of a privileged religion in the empire? And so, as the story goes, and I'll do this in air quotes, um, Constantine became Christian, and it was wonderful in some ways. The church now no longer had to exist on the margins, fearful of moments of persecution. Now the church could be in the center, and we could build buildings, and we could do all these kind of cool things. And we could enter into places of public service without fear, And all of that was kind of great, but here's what eventually happened. Eventually, then, Christian faith became associated with being part of a particular nation. Now, the empire, if you will, is Christian. And that set up about 1,300, 1,400 years where in the West, that's kind of how people thought. Nations became Christian, and then the people in them became Christian because they were part of that nation. So, 500 years ago... 
when the Reformation happened and Luther posted his 95 Theses and left the Catholic Church, the strangest thing happened. It wasn't as though Luther then pitched a tent and had revivals and said, hey, all you who want to leave medieval Catholicism and join something new, come, we're going to sing, I guess in his case, it'd be three verses of a mighty fortress is our God. And if nobody comes, that was a good joke, by the way. Um, if nobody comes forward, we'll, we'll pack up the tent. No, what happened is the German princes and some of the Scandinavian princes decided, yeah, we'd like to be out of Rome and we would like to be part of this new thing. And so the princes converted. And so guess what? All the German and Scandinavian people became Lutherans. So I always say, that's why you go to Minnesota today and there's Lutherans everywhere. Why? Because all these nations converted. England, we, our theological lineage actually comes out of the Anglican tradition. Henry VIII started a new church and guess what everybody in England became? Anglicans. And so for a long time, and I think it's still in some ways the habit of our imagination, that we become Christian by kind of association. My favorite story to tell on this is when Debbie worked at Warner Brothers years ago. On her desk was all sorts of um, Jesus swag. And um, a friend came and said, are, are you Christian? And Debbie said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian now for a few years. Christ has really changed my life. Are you a Christian? And the person said, I'm not Jewish, <laughs> right? Well, it's less and less the case, but there's still the sense for many of us that we're a Christian because we're good citizens of a particular nation that thinks of itself as, air quotes, Christian. Or as we talked about a few weeks ago, one of the beauties of pastoring this church is how many generations live here and worship together because you can't afford to move anywhere else, but you're here, right? <laughs> Worshiping together. But for those of us, and, and we've had these wonderful memorial services where we celebrate these, these amazing ancestors of faith in this church who've gone on before us. But even though we are the, we get to benefit from the blessing of the faith that has been handed down to them. I think about my family system, the blessing of three or four or five generations now of deeply devoted Christians and what that has meant in my own life and in my children's life. But here's the deal. That is a blessing to you. But, that, but you don't just get to live off that faith of your ancestor. You get to receive the inheritance and blessing of that. But now, what are you wearing to this party? Are you entering into this thing? Because it doesn't take but one generation that decides, I'm going to I'm going to dress for a different party, for a whole different set of things to be handed from generation to generation. And I think we get a kind of bad theology of grace and faith. I think especially in American Christianity, a lot of our understanding of this is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which is absolutely true. And that means that no matter what we have done, no matter what sins we carry, the grace of God is greater than our sin. Absolutely true. And that all that we have done, all that we have broken and marred and all the ways we have been broken and marred, all of that can be overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. And all we have to do to access that grace in our lives is to believe in Christ and believe in his death and resurrection. Absolutely true. But I think oftentimes we have a theology that says, all right, good. <laughs> That's it.
The problem is God's grace does not just want to forgive us. It wants to change us. The love of God is too vast to just take broken people and say, well, come to my broken party. It is a grace that invites us in our brokenness to a party we did not deserve to be invited to. But by God's expansive grace and inclusive mercy, he has brought us in. And now we get to be partiers. So put on the clothes. Be transformed by that grace and love and mercy. The good news is not just about a God who overlooks what a mess we are. The good news is a God who loves us too much to leave us in the mess. Which I think then leads us to a final kind of bad theology these days. What I'll call it kind of theology of permissiveness. So, every generation, okay? I, can, I think I can argue that just about every generation in Christian history has had to wrestle with the faith that was handed to them from the generation before. And I feel these days a generation or two are wrestling with the faith that they were handed to from the generation or two before us. And a lot of that we look at and say, oh, that was wonderful. That was so good. That was so helpful and transformative. But we also look and say, oh, that wasn't so good. And and these days, especially um, in the things I get invited to be part of, especially these last few years, I've read a lot in the area, especially about our bodies. And sometimes I think my generation and the generations following me look back at some of the ways that we were shaped to think about our bodies, and we say, some of that was really good, some of that wasn't so good. And there's a lot of writing these days about what's called a kind of purity culture. They had the right heart, but oftentimes did this. Rather than teach us how to live healthy in the body, it actually made us sort of ashamed of our bodies and set us up for really unhealthy relationships in the future. And a lot of the critique also says the ways that we thought about our bodies not only created a lot of shame around our bodies, but it also put an unnecessary burden on women rather than men and did some things and set us up for some really unhealthy lives moving forward. So over the last seven, eight years, I have had to read a lot of that stuff and and read some of those critiques. And I have to say, a vast majority, I kind of go, yeah, oh man, yeah, that happened. I remember when we did that in youth group and that's probably not good. That was bad. And some things that I think were right critiques, but but here's the problem. More often than not, I get to to the end of all these critiques, of all of this stuff that seems kind of like unhealthy baggage that we have carried. But then I get to the end and I say, but then what are we offering instead? And what we offer instead is not patterns to become healthier in the ways that we covenant with each other in our bodies but ways that just say, give in to your desire (laughs) and sets us up for other kinds of broken relationships because it doesn't invite us into healthy patterns and doesn't just get us out of unhealthy ones, but does not offer us healthy, Christ-like beauty in the body. Are you with me this morning? And so I, I... I come to this parable, and I think Jesus wants us to come to this parable and say, this is the good news. The doors are wide open. 
Grace floods the streets. The inclusive heart of God embraces us all. Come with all your messiness. Come with all your brokenness. Come with all your sinfulness. That's such good news. Not one of us in this room deserved to be invited today. But God called us nevertheless. But the great news is we weren't called to just come and wallow in our brokenness. But we were called to come and be made new. And if we don't allow the grace of God to make us new, the same brokenness that was the end of those who refused to come in the first place may end up being the very same brokenness that we experience even though we showed up at the party. One of the good things is we, we're John Wesley's kids. This 18th century Anglican priest who we talk about a lot, who looked around his 18th century Anglican world and said, man, most of the people who are here think they're Christian because they're English. Eww. That's not what the scripture calls us to, just to be good citizens. Ooh. That was my English accent right there. Um, hmm. Even in John's own life, he realized what a gift the faith of Samuel and Susanna had been in his own life, but came to the realization, as blessed as he was by their faithfulness, it was now time for him to decide what was his life going to be like. And as he looked around at folks who were experiencing grace but had not been transformed, he realized that is just half a gospel. He began to think about what it means to be sanctified through and through, where every single part of our being belongs to him and is dressed for this party and is changed by the grace and mercy of God. The last verse is kind of challenging, where Jesus says, well... Many are invited, but few people are chosen. I think if we read that verse without recognizing the whole parable in front of it was about how many opportunities people had been given to respond to this and didn't. We can read it as though God has kind of made a list and he checks it twice and he's already decided who is naughty and nice. And some are in, some are out, and then we all get to be worried for the rest of our lives about which list maybe we're on. But I don't think that's what this verse says. But I think this verse can best be read this way. Many people are invited, but unfortunately, few live into the life of the chosen. For from the very beginning, what God was doing was forming a people who would be a reflection of his love, life, mercy, and healing in the world. And it was usually people nobody expected, the youngest we should have a father and mother of many nations. Grab that barren couple. The invitation always goes to unexpected people. But unfortunately, few live into the life that God wants for his people. And with that comes a warning, <laughs> but also with that comes a promise that if we will live into the expansive heart and the transforming grace of God. He can take folks like us 
who never thought we'd be invited to this kind of party, let alone have the right clothes to wear. He can clothe us in himself and transform us to be what he has created us to be. A people who reflect his love and life in the world. God, help us today. Um, I pray for some who are in this room this morning, some who are watching online, some who may watch later, not even this week, but sometime down the road. I pray you'd allow this text to be a kind of warning that just being present, as great as that is, is not the end of the story that you have for us. For what you want us to be is new creation, a new people, people transformed by your grace and mercy. Thankfully, uh, you are patient in that process with us. But we do have to decide to put on the clothes of the new creation to invite you to transform us. Um, and so I pray for some young people here. Um, and I'm counting 50-year-olds as young today. Pray for many of us who received heritages of faithfulness. We're invited to the party before, um, like our little ones today, who were brought into a family and into a party. We didn't even know there was anything else but where we've been brought into. But we don't get to live off the faith of those who've gone before us. At some point, that faith also has to become ours. And so help us today to be transformed by your grace and to be instruments of your transforming grace in the world. Um, it is great that, you, um, that your grace is greater than our sin, but when we say that, we don't just mean it's great enough to forgive. We also believe it's great enough to change us. And so fill us with your spirit today. Transform us. And we recognize that we can mess things up a lot. And there are things that we need to be freed from, but there are also ways that you invite us into the health of a new creation. And so forgive us um, as we have run from legalism. Forgive us for the ways that we go sprinting into permissivism um, and end up missing the reality of your transformation so change us, invite us into the health and beauty and goodness and love and mercy that you have for us. For as our uh, friend John Wesley would say, this is a holy love that you have invited us into and that adjective matters. Make us holy, we pray. Change us. Make us, as we're about to sing, make us the new wine that you want us to be form us to be your people. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you